Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Friday. We made it. It's the weekend. Football just around the corner. Ball State taking on UConn. I know that's on everybody's calendar. It's the biggest game of the weekend. I can't wait. Then on Sunday, in a game almost as big as the Ball State Cardinals, the UConn Huskies, the Chiefs and the Bills. I mean, wow, what a weekend. Ball State UConn on Saturday, uh, Chiefs Bills on Sunday. What could be better? Uh, and so I'm just glad we made it. Thank God we made it. And man, we're going to stick the landing and, and, and knock it out of the park here on this Friday and try to end on a very high note. We have a fantastic show. Uh, plan for you today, Steve Kim, the Korean Cosell. We've missed Steve Kim. It's been, I don't think he's been on the show in two days. And so we're going to give you a big dose of Steve Kim and talk some NFL football with Steve and just talk sports with Steve kind of to start the show. Uh, and then uh, Shamika Michelle is going to be here. She's promised me uh, she's going to do a little singing, I think. Uh, so you'll enjoy that. Uh, and then we'll end the show on, you know, our highest note, bring in our smartest soldier, Delano Squires. So fantastic. Kick back. Get ready to be entertained, to have your thoughts challenged. Uh, and for me to start a fire and, and then have Steve Kim fan these flames and get into a great football discussion. Uh, but I want to take care of a little business so that uh, when Steve Kim and I get to yakking, uh, I don't have to you know, slow down or anything, and who knows where the conversation will go. And so I want to tell you guys about my good friends at Preborn. Almost one out of every five Americans never have a chance to live outside the womb because of abortion. It's the leading cause of infant death in the world. Over 63 million babies have been aborted just since Roe v. Wade was enacted, and a lot more will be aborted in its wake. The Ministry of Preborn and us here at the Blaze Media, we have partnered to help rescue 50,000 babies from abortion in 2022. We're working to put Planned Parenthood out of business by providing free ultrasounds to expecting mothers who 80% of the time, when they hear that baby's heartbeat, it convinces the mother to keep her baby. And when she chooses life, that's where preborn steps in. They provide maternity and baby clothes, diapers, car seats, counseling, and much more, all for free. That's their level and our level of commitment to the preservation of life. Preborn has a passion to save unborn babies from abortion and see women come to Christ. Over the past 15 years, preborn centers have counseled nearly 500,000 women and they've saved nearly 190,000 babies. Are you kidding me? 
What more could we do? What's a better job, a mission, than to save the lives of babies? To donate, all you have to do is dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250, keyword baby, or go to preborn.com slash fearless. That's my favorite way to give. Go to preborn.com slash fearless. You guys have seen me do it on the show. You know I'm committed to this issue. This issue is personal with me. We have to be good, fearless soldiers, saving babies' lives, making people understand the value of life in the womb is how we change this culture. It's how we push back and make things better. It's a little small thing, $28 per ultrasound. You can save five babies' lives, $140, provides five ultrasounds. Hop on board with Preborn. It's something we can all do as fearless soldiers to make this world a better place. All right, uh, now with that out of the way, the most important thing out of the way, saving babies' lives, I can move on to entertaining you guys uh, and talk about uh, some issues in sports and then we'll bring on Steve Kim uh, to help me with the discussion. Uh, Mike Royko inspired my journalism career. He looked nothing like me or anyone in my family. Royko wrote a syndicated column for the Chicago Tribune. His columns, badgering local politicians and ridiculing American presidents and celebrities, earned him the 1972 Pulitzer Prize for commentary and worldwide acclaim. I wanted to be like Mike. It did not matter that he was old, white, and Polish and that I was young, black, and fat. As a freshman at Ball State University in 1985, I switched my major to journalism with the desired goal of being the sports writing version of Mike Royko. His columns rocked. I discovered them around the age of 12 while reading the Indianapolis News, my hometown's afternoon newspaper. The news ran two Royko columns per week. I never missed them. They made me laugh. They angered me. They broadened my view of the world. Again, I wanted to be like Mike. I thought about Royko on Thursday when a clip of Tampa Bay Buccaneers coach Todd Bowles went viral. Reporters peppered Bowles with questions about his upcoming matchup with the Pittsburgh head coach Mike Tomlin. Bowles and Tomlin are both black. Corporate media believe Tomlin, Bowles, that that clash has additional significance because of their shared dark skin. Bowles rejected that notion. Take a listen. Coach, uh, you, you and Mike Tomlin are two of the few black head coaches in the league. I wonder what your relationship is like with them and your thoughts on Steve Wilkes joining that poll. I have a very good relationship with Tomlin. Uh, we don't look at what color we are when we coach against each other. We just know each other. I have a lot of very good white friends that coach in this league as well, and I don't think it's a big deal as far as us being coaching against each other. I think it's normal. Wilkes got an opportunity to do a good job. Hopefully he does it. And we coach ball. We don't look at color. Unsatisfied with his answer, another reporter told Bowles, you also understand that rep representation matters too, right? And that when aspiring coaches or even football players, they see you guys, they see someone who, ho who looks like them, that grew up like them, that has to mean something. Todd Bowles rejected that notion too. He argued that the question made black coaches seem like oddballs. Take a listen. 
But you also understand that representation matters too, right? And that when young aspiring coaches or even football players, they see you guys, you know, they see someone that looks like them, maybe grew up like them, that has to mean something. Well, when you say you see you guys and look like them and grow up like them, it means that we're eyeballs to begin with. And I think the minute you guys start, stop making a big deal about it, everybody else will as well. Mm. 37 years ago, I set my sights on being the next Mike Royko. It never crossed my mind that I couldn't do it because of my skin color or Royko's. I saw a man having phenomenal success in an industry I wanted to enter. I thought I could do it too. What has changed in the last four decades? Barack Obama wanted to be the president of the United States. Did he need to see another half black man become president before realizing he could do it? You know what matters more than representation? Belief in yourself. The foundation for self-belief, AKA self-confidence, is belief in God, a belief that you are made in God's image. Skin color loses relevance when you authentically believe we were all created by the same higher power. The secular worldview undermines self-confidence. It reduces people to skin colors, genders, and sexual preferences. Todd Bowles probably wants to be the next Bill Belichick, the most successful coach in NFL history. That should be the goal of every NFL coach. Bowles doesn't want to be the best black head coach. He wants to be the best. He believes he's capable of being the best. The reporter telling Bowles that black coaches grew up like each other is naive and foolish. She has no idea whether Tomlin and Bowles had similar childhood experiences. It's all speculation driven by the assumption that black Americans have a shared upbringing, that we're a monolith. My roommate in college, Todd Fennell, grew up in the, in the house his college-educated parents owned. I grew up in apartments. My parents divorced when I was five years old. My dad didn't graduate from high school. My mom was a factory worker. Todd Fennell grew up Catholic. I grew up Baptist. He attended a private high school. I attended a public high school. We were roommates for five years at Ball State. He's like a brother to me. But I had more in common with Mike Royko, an old white dude. Royko's family owned a neighborhood bar in Chicago that catered to white factory workers. Royko lived in an apartment above the bar. He grew up on a bar stool. My dad owned a neighborhood bar that catered to factory workers. I grew up on a bar stool listening to working class black men and women socialize. It wasn't until he died in 1997 that I realized how similar my upbringing was to Mike Royko's. When he passed, I started collecting his books and many of the things written about his life and career. Skin color is a superficial issue that corporate media want us to obsess about. The media point us away from the deeper things that tie us together. It was inspiring to see Todd Bowles reject the racial manipulation commonplace in corporate media. Most people just instinctively tell reporters what they want to hear. Let's hope Bowles isn't punished for failing to follow the script. All right, uh, let's bring in uh, my main man, Steve Kim, uh, to talk about this fire I just set. Uh, Steve. 
perhaps for a different set of reasons than mine, uh, were you inspired by the way Todd Bowles handled that situation? Oh, I, I thought it was spectacular. Uh, look, he, I don't know if he's ever going to win a Lombardi trophy, but I'd like to give him one of my own. I, I just thought it, it was really interesting because the, the immediate thought came to my mind of the words of, I believe, Thomas Sowell, that the demand for racism far outseeds the supply. And just the way he reacted to the original question, um, and he's just like, oh, geez, this. Like, you could just tell. He's had enough of it. He just wants to play ball. It's about wins. Uh, the Buccaneers are kind of an unsteady team right now for various reasons. He's trying to win a ball game. This is his job. And then Miss Karen, I think her name is Jenna Lane at ESPN, it was incredibly patronizing. Because so, basically what she said was, no, 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 trust me. I'm a white liberal woman. You are oppressed. And you could just tell. He's like, he's like Karen, please. And thankfully, Todd Bowles has the gut to just flat out say, no, nah, it's not that important to me. I'm trying to win a ball game. And it goes back to the discussion that you had with Jason Brown a couple of weeks ago about the issue of black coaches and how, look, some of them don't understand. You got to get into this early and it's, it's long, hard hours. Now, for most coaches, you have to be a graduate assistant at college where you're literally making pennies on the dollar, and it's not a glamorous job. And even as a position coach, as you work your way up to maybe a Division I Power 5 job, you don't start making any money. So my view is this. Todd Bowles went through the coaching circuit. He put in all that time, and he's like, I didn't do this as a black man or a white man. I did this because my vocation, my passion is football, and I'm going to make sacrifices in my life that have nothing to do with anybody but me. So I'm not trying to represent anybody else but myself as Todd Bowles. So, and when people start bringing up, why aren't there more black coaches? I guarantee you, or my opinion is that in the back of his mind is he's saying, well, a lot of my black teammates didn't want to put in the work and I did. But he, he can never really say it. But I think yesterday he may have said it without really saying it. Do you think the media is going to try to uh, exact revenge on him for not going along with, with their talking points because most people just want to get through an interview and so they tell the media what they want to hear. And so what Jenna Lane was doing there or whoever the female Karen was, what she was doing there is like, I'm going to provide you the answer, just repeat it. And so what right. she wanted him to say, yes, representation does matter. And again, we, we, people, we've done this over and over again. It's commonplace. And, and I'm just wondering if, if he won't be punished in some kind of way down the road this year. Will the criticism be amped up because he won't, he refused in this instance to play the race card? Well, the best way to insulate himself is to win. Bottom line, people love winners. They treat people differently when you win. It's called the winning privilege. It's not always fair, but it is what it is. You know, I, I love the fact that Jenna Lane thought she was going to put in a play call, and Todd Bowles just went, Omaha, Omaha, nope, not going with it. I'm changing the play here. I'll be honest with you. As I, as I was looking through all the coverage of the NFL games, now admittedly, I prepare more just mentally for the college stuff on Saturday I didn't hear one mention of this black-on-black -black battle on the sidelines. No one really cared. 
I don't even think a lot of the fans that care about it even really brought it up. We're now into the heart of the football season. Get this. The fans actually care about just the results of the game. They're not looking at this as some socioeconomic experiment played out on a gridiron. Um, and I'm just I'm just really heartened by the fact that Todd Bowles had enough guts not to even give the cliched answer. Because I think a lot of guys do because they feel pressured by it. But I've told you this before, Jason, whether it's coaching or actually playing, the ones that make it, right, are the ones that put in a couple things. They have a genetic advantage because you got to have the right DNA. You got to be physically uh, built to play certain sports. And number two, they survive the process. But number three, they work harder. They're pushed through the system and they have a certain work ethic. And I think by the time they make it, they look back and say, God, you know what? I'm actually glad I survived all the riffraff. And I'm glad that I was a little bit of a tougher, more disciplined person. But when they're pressed with these type of questions, I think there's a bit of a survivor's guilt where they have to give the cliched answers that they don't even mean because, quite frankly, they don't want the heat that some of their honesty might bring. Well, they don't want the headache. And, right. and, yeah. By answering it the way that he did, it creates a news cycle. And, and again, it's going to be in the news cycle anyway because if he gives them the answer they want, you know, it's going to be, oh, yeah, Todd Bowles and – Mike Tomlin and this whole great racial dynamic or whatever. And, and so he doesn't give them that, but he gives them something different. And so now they're disappointed that they can't run with the story that their editors had assigned and probably ESPN or someone had packages built and probably CBS, or no, it's an NFC and an AFC team. Ain't no telling which network is uh, covering this game or broadcasting this game. But maybe they wanted to build that into the pregame package, and Todd Bowles is saying, no, I, I don't want this to be part of the narrative. It's me and Mike Tomlin. It's the Steelers and the Buccaneers. And I don't want to deal with the burden of this racial dynamic that only serves you. It doesn't help Tomlin. Yeah. It doesn't help Todd Bowles. It doesn't help any assistant coach looking for a job. Because you know, I, I just... It's just so naive, and the whole uh, insinuation that what I found offensive and just uninformed is like, oh, yeah, you all grew up the same, you all got same experience, and it's just not true. It would almost be like, do you run into every Korean and say, oh, man, your experience here in America must be the exact same as mine? I, I, I doubt if, if that's what you think. Jason, I've literally never been asked that. They just look at us as people. And, and I, I hate that whole thing about quote unquote representation. So if you want to boil it down to the Asian Korean experience, experience, the reason why we've done okay, you know, you can call us the model minority or whatever. I don't know if that's necessarily true anymore. But the, one of the reasons in my view, having lived through it, why we've been able to actually successfully navigate the American dream is that none of that has been important. Uh, we don't care about if we make a billboard, if we're actually in movies and commercials or in sports. I mean, it's a little bit of a big deal. I still remember when Chan Ho Park was with the Dodgers. It was a big deal for Koreans out here. You'd go to the game. But we understood one thing. At the end of the day, 
we still got to open up our liquor stores and our dry cleanings, and we got to take our SATs. We were expected to go to college. <laughs> Whatever success Channel Park has, and if he makes a billion dollars, we don't get to live vicariously through it. In fact, I'm very wary when these like K-pop groups like the BTS, whatever those kids are, I don't really listen to them, are visiting the White House. Because now I'm like, uh-oh, uh-oh, now we're falling into the trap. Uh, I didn't even like it when that one movie a couple years ago won the Academy Award and they trotted out all these Koreans to, to pick up their trophy. And they're thinking, oh, this is great. Now we're going to have more representation in Hollywood. And, and I'm thinking to myself, that may not be a good thing. Honestly, because I'm going to ask this question again. As a community, would you rather have one movie star, one rock star, uh, one famous athlete, or would you have a thousand doctors, lawyers, accountants, and business owners? Uh, uh, because, again, these symbolic figures to me, I, I think they're very dangerous because of the idolatry that follows. And I, I actually hope that there's never uh, a great big A-list Korean star because you're starting to fall into that whole demonic world of Hollywood and entertainment, which I, I find unsettling. Um, look, when there's an Asian athlete, I'll make jokes about it. But once they're playing a game, um, they're an athlete to me. They are a piece of programming that I choose to enjoy over my television set uh, once or twice a week. That's it. And so Jenna Lane's question of, oh, but these kids see you. Can I be honest with you? Jace, let's be honest. Right now, there's no kid in an inner city that actually says to himself, wow, I want to be Todd Bowles and wearing a headset. They're not thinking that. That, that is such a patronizing, phony question to ask that somehow Todd Bowles is a figure who's making a very nice living through his sacrifice, hard work, and his um, ability to reach people but there are no kids, in my view, that are looking themselves, yeah, I want to be the next Todd Bowles. That whole thing was shambolic. It, it, two things just happened. One, you just made a great point. And because and, I think I the reason <laughs> why I was into Mike Royko is because, one, his work was the best. It was entertaining, and he was recognized as that. And so when I changed to journalism, I just, I just want to be the best. So let me model myself after the best. And I'm sure there's black kids, white kids, Asian kids that love basketball that sat around and said, I want to be Michael Jordan. I, and again, it's an unrealistic goal, but th that's, if they like basketball, that's who they were patterning themselves after. They weren't, th there aren't many, I don't think Asian kids that like, like basketball, their real role models, Michael Jordan, is not Jeremy Lin. They got no problem with Jeremy Lin. Right. They, they, they like Jeremy Lin, but it's like, if you're a real competitor, it's like, I want to be Michael Jordan. That's one. The more important thing that just happened here, Steve, that, that and I say this in all seriousness, and, and you just use the words demonic and idolatry. And I love it because this show's having an influence on you. And I don't know if you're aware of it, but I love it. Uh, thank Jason, you for I, doing that. I, can I make yeah, one point? Go the ahead. closest any yes. the closest any average Asian uh, kid, teenager, female, or male is gonna get to Michael Jordan or being in the NBA is actually buying the Air Jordans. And we're good at it. We we get the shoes. We've probably got there, – there are so many sneakerheads that are Asian. And I said, you know what? As long as you realize 
that's as close as you'll get to the NBA and you're getting a good SAT, you're on the right track. Just just stay Asian. You're, you're not making the NBA. You're not. That's the reality. I, I love your point, though, too, and you've made it before, but I love your point that, like, Asian people aren't concerning themselves with representation in Hollywood. Yeah. And that's actually smart uh, that, that, oh, my God, we can't have success unless we see it on some Hollywood screen or on some television screen and let, we don't get that representation. And, and it's like, nah, that's just not true. It, it's Jason, what, do I do this homework or not? Go ahead. There was a show a couple years ago I tried to give a shot. It was called Fresh Off the Boat. It was about an Asian family living. It was based on a true story of some guy that's a chef. I, I gave it three episodes, and I wanted to ship that boat back and sink it like the Titanic. It was an awful show. Just the fact that there were a lot of Asians meant nothing to me. I did not think it was a good show. And you talk about how they start to patronize you with the representation card. If Hillary Clinton ever came to Koreatown or any Chinatown across the country and was campaigning or any Democratic or any politician and out of her purse whipped out a packet of soy sauce, I would hope to God we stab her with chopsticks. But they don't do that to us. And the fact they don't do that to us, I think is a great thing because it just means we are not going to let a politician, hopefully, and I think it's actually changing, unfortunately, we're not going to let a politician drive us from a cultural standpoint. I think that's the overall point I'm trying to make here. Good stuff. Let me take care of a little business and we're going to continue the football conversation. Uh, do you really control your retirement money? If you've got a 401k or IRA or similar retirement plan, the government actually controls it. They decide how much you can borrow, when you must pay it back, you will also owe taxes and penalties for taking money out too soon, even though it's your money. Thanks to our skyrocketing national debt, who knows how much you'll have to pay in taxes during a retirement that could last 30 years. Thankfully, Bank on Yourself is a better way to go, a better way to grow and protect your hard-earned money. This retirement plan alternative has never had a losing year in over 160 years. No volatility. Your plan doesn't go backwards when the markets tumble. Both your principal and growth are locked in. You have control over your money without government penalties or restrictions on how much income you can take or when you can take it. Perhaps the best reason of all, you'll get peace of mind because you'll know the minimum guaranteed value of your plan on the day you plan to tap into it and at every point along the way. You can get a free report with all the details of how adding bank on yourself to your financial plan can help you take back control of your money. Just go to bankonyourself.com fearless. That's bankonyourself.com fearless. This whole show, everything we talk about on this show is about self-determination, self-control, taking control of your life, preparing yourself. We know what the left is doing and trying to make us all dependent on the government and trying to take away our, se our self-determination, our own agency. Bank on yourself is a good way to go for any fearless soldier, anybody out there that wants that financial independence and control. Bank on yourself is a way to go. Go to bankonyourself.com fearless. Start banking on yourself right now. All right, Steve, uh, welcome back. Uh, I want to get into uh, Ron Rivera, Ugh. and he's doing some flip-flopping here. He <laughs> went from, in my view, calling out Carson Wentz, his mm. quarterback, earlier in the week, to now 
uh, defending Carson Wentz after one of the <laughs> ugliest games we've seen since the who the Broncos play that ugly game with. Uh, Indy. Not the Seahawks. Indy. Indy Colts. Indianapolis. Yeah, the, one of the ugliest games we've seen in two weeks. <laughs> These Thursday night games are terrible. But anyway, uh, after Carson Wentz threw for 90-some-odd yards last night, uh, Ron Rivera, the head coach, jumped to his defense. Let, let's play the criticism clip and then what he did last night. Let's, let's take a look. Why do you think the teams in the division are farther ahead at this point? Quarterback. The truth is that this is a quarterback-driven league. And if you look at the teams that have been able to sustain success, they've been able to build it around a specific quarterback. Mm. More fired up about you've given similar answers in the past about this, but you seem more fired up now. Is it just something about the circumstances? The way no, what's important is these guys. Okay, for the last couple of weeks, honestly, I'm going to I'm going to speak my mind for a second. For honestly, uh, it's been hard. It really has. You lose four games in a row, and everybody wants to get you, you know, just get on you. And they've played their asses off. They have. They play their asses off for everybody. They come out and they show up. They work hard. All right. They don't complain. Okay. They hear all this stuff and they got to deal with it. I get that and I respect them for that because they're resilient. They come back. Everybody keeps wanting to say, I didn't want anything to do with Carson. Well, I'm the guy that pulled out the sheets of paper, that looked at the analytics, that watched the tape in the freaking when we were at Indianapolis. Okay? And that's what pisses me off because the young man doesn't deserve to have that all the time. I'm so there was, a, I think, an ESPN story that came out that basically said Daniel Snyder is the one that wanted Carson Wentz and the coaching staff was against Carson Wentz. And Ron Rivera added fuel earlier in the week when he takes that pot shot at Carson Wentz to that narrative and that storyline. Now he's out uh, on the other side of this saying, I'm the one that wanted him, blah, blah, blah. What do you think about the way Ron Rivera is handling Carson Wentz? Is he, is he telling the truth last night? Riverboat Ron is now the Titanic, and, and the iceberg is hit. I, I just look. I defended Ron Rivera a couple weeks ago as a good football man. All good things must come to an end. This is a bad one. Look, first of all, you began the week by throwing your quarterback under the bus, and now last night, I don't know if you're throwing yourself under the bus or trying to protect Daniel Snyder. Let's look at the history of Mr. FedEx as the owner of that once proud franchise from the very beginning when he took over. He has been the de facto GM. I still remember at the turn of the century, long ago, uh, he ran out Marty Schottenheimer, who was on the verge of stabilizing that team. I remember the last 9, 10 games, they won like 8 or 10. You're thinking, you know what? Marty Ball is working. Got rid of him. Marty didn't want to take it. Snyder didn't like not having complete autonomy over his team. Then there was that time that he brought in like the 1990s all-pro team, in the year 2000, it was with Bruce Smith, Deion Sanders, and a bunch of guys. And you just knew that was not going to be the dream team. And it didn't work out. And it's been then Dwayne Haskins. A couple of years ago, all of the draft people with the Redskins said, don't take this guy at this point. It is a product of the system. It's a mirage. What's he do? He drafts Dwayne Haskins, a first-round quarterback that couldn't get to the second year of his contract, which is almost unheard of for that position at the first round. So am I led to believe that Daniel Snyder basically said Carson Wentz is my quarterback based on the history that I just laid out? Yeah. And, and I don't know what Ron's doing. Ron is now doing what they call bad acting. 
And, and my view is this. If you're the victim of a bad situation, just say, you know what, we need to be better at quarterback. We need to be better. Give a bunch of coach speak, go into cliche 101, and then walk off the stage. But that show right there, it, it made me actually lose respect for Ron because it's like a guy who's very desperate to keep a job that nobody else really wants. Well, he knows that he has a job because Daniel Snyder's backed into a corner, has all this bad PR. Daniel Snyder's got to lean into diversity, inclusion, and equity. And so Ron gets to work and collect the check and hold that job with very little pressure to win because the, the owner can't fire him uh, because of the whole diversity, inclusion, and equity thing. So uh, Ron, you know, Ron doesn't know what he thinks day to day. He knows he has a bad team. He knows, and, you know, last night the parts of that game I watched, I can't even blast Carson Wentz. I thought the receivers were awful, uh, yeah. particularly I Curtis mean, Samuel. Uh, I will say this. Go ahead. I've never seen a coach defend his own decision to get a quarterback that threw for 99 yards in an NFL game. <laughs> that takes a lot of character because if it was me it does. and I knew that, you know what, you know what, I'm going to lose this job. And, and, and the best job in America right now, Jason, is actually the coach who gets fired. Not only do you get a vacation, you get tens of millions of dollars. So if it was me, I would have said, yeah, that bum out there that threw for 99 yards, that was the second best quarterback on that field behind Justin Fields, not my call. Talk to the guy upstairs and just walk off the podium. That's what I would have done. <laughs> uh, Troy Aikman backpedaling and apologizing like Deion Sanders right now for his comment to take the dresses off. Uh, it, 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 are you surprised? I, I'm a big fan of Troy Aikman. I think he's great. I love the take the dresses off comment. Uh, are you surprised he's backpedaling? No, but I'm going to give him credit for letting it go in the first place. It, it is like, look, you can pass gas in a crowded room and make everyone run, and you can apologize for it. Problem is the stench is already there. And, and right now, Troy, that was a positive stench. It needed to be cut. You needed to pass that gas. You did it. God bless you. Look, you knew we had to do something because I, I think there's so much internal pressure that Disney slash ESPN can you at least look, let me you ask go, you that question. Let me ask you that question. If he says that at Fox, does he apologize? Prop. Mm, yes, I no. still. I think there's more pressure at ESPN, but I think there's still pressure overall. We're still talking about mainstream media. We're still talking about a major network again in my view is there heightened pressure at espn slash disney to retract a little bit or to backtrack yes and i didn't necessarily expect him not to because i felt like you know what he's in a national position um there, there was a lot made of it i don't think troy wants to be the focus of the game i really don't that's just the way he is mm. um he's yeah, not bold and brash so, look, for his own good, but you know what? The fact he said it is good enough for me. I'll just leave. I know I'm kind of backtracking myself, but you know what? Just the fact you let it go, credit to you, Troy. Hopefully that's enough. All right. So let's contradict that he doesn't want to be the focus of attention by pointing out that Aikman has said, and I think said later in that interview where he's backpedaling and apologizing, he says that if the Cowboys beat Philadelphia, the undefeated Philadelphia Eagles this week, 
they should consider keeping Cooper Rush at quarterback over Dak Prescott. That that blows well, my mind that he said that. Do, well, do you agree? He, he's allowed to have his opinion. I, look, if Cooper Rush is the starter and they go into that absolute manic atmosphere against really one of the best teams in the National Football League, and I believe in this game, Cooper's going to have to make some plays. He just can't game manage. If you're just going to have him throw 16 times for a little over 100 yards, Unless the Eagles turn that ball over four or five times, I don't see them winning the game. So let's go through this hypothetical. Cooper Rush plays a good game, throws for well over, let's say, 225 yards to 300, protects the ball, produces 21 to 24 points, okay, and they win the game. There's an old saying, Jason, if it ain't broke, why fix it? Because now I get the sense that whole locker room, as much as they may like Dak, they start to believe in Cooper. So now it becomes a bit of a dilemma. I actually do not disagree with Troy Aikman there. If Cooper Rush starts, he plays well, leads them to victory, along with that unbelievable defense, I don't change a thing. I I completely disagree. I think Dak Mm. Prescott's overpaid. I've been on the record with that for years. I said they never should have given that money. However, they're winning because of that defense, not because of Cooper Rush. And so if they want to win a Super Bowl, Dak Prescott gives them the best chance of taking advantage of this potentially great defensive unit they seem to have put together. So I don't care what happens. Unless Jason, he's though. got those for 500 oh. yards, and I don't think that's happening. Jason. I don't think he's capable of that. He's, he's done nothing to show me that he's better than Dak Prescott. Okay, but Jason, we're talking about this situation. Let, let, let's do this. Just because you're completely overpaid isn't the reason I'm saying, well, that guy's overpaid. Let's play him. No, makes no sense. In my view, here's what you do. You let Cooper Rush start because, again, you don't know if Dak is really ready or not. Now, there's two things that can happen. Either Cooper Rush is a guy that's better than we thought, and, oh, maybe that's our starter and we found something. Or if Cooper Rush comes back down to earth and has a horrible game, now is a very convenient time to put in Dak. Dak without playing yeah, but, can actually reassert his starting position, in my view. Yeah, you could undermine him, though. If you don't go to back to Dak as soon as he's healthy, you've undermined him in the locker room. You've undermined his confidence. You, you've opened the floodgates oh, for a guy oh, that Cooper Rush. Jay- I mean, Cooper Rush is a, a good he, – he's not Rich Gannon, and, and he's not even Nick Foles. And, and – we got to remember who Nick Foles actually is. He had a nice run in Philadelphia. It produced a Super Bowl. Every place else he went, it didn't work. Every other situation, it didn't work. It ended up contributing, I think, to Carson Wentz's failure uh, in Philadelphia. No reason to do that to Dak when you got all that money tied up in it. For a guy that just hasn't shown you. Let's say Dak starts, throws four interceptions, plays an awful game. What's the ramifications of that? What happens to the locker room at that point? Well, that's one game. Right. <laughs> and if you, you cross that bridge, you cross that bridge when it happens. That's a new set of information, and then maybe you make a different decision. But you've already made the decision to pay Dak like $45 million or so or whatever. And you got and Cooper Rush is not better than Dak. Now, 
I'll, I'll, maybe he's better for Dallas in this particular scenario and situation with that defense and taking advantage. Who, who knows? But I've spent the money. Dak's more talented. He, gives, he has a higher upside. He gives the team a higher upside. I'm not doing anything silly here by going with Cooper Rush. Cooper Rush is a, a, was just a fair Mac quarterback. I love the Mid-American Conference, but, you know, he wasn't Chad Pennington. You know, he wasn't Ben Roethlisberger in the Mac. He was Cooper Rush. Uh, <laughs> so let me move on uh, to another Cowboys quarterback. Dick Ebersole, legendary, you know, uh, broadcasting, sports broadcasting executive, uh, has said that Tony Romo has lost his passion for broadcasting. Uh, me and you love to talk about broadcasting. I've always thought Tony Romo was a bit overvalued. Uh, people have started to say last year and this year, he's not as good as he used to be. Mm. I, I think he's like a lot of the current athletes uh, that I see. He's overpaid, resting on his laurels, and not as good. I, I think Dick Ebersole may be on to something. I, I'll be honest. When I listen to Tony Romo, I still find him to be incredibly informative. And him and Jim Nance, when they call a game, I don't know if they're the team anymore, because I'll be honest, I do a lot of red zones. So I'm flipping around. But Romo, to me, I don't think he's lost an inch off his fastball. And I don't, I don't buy that. Well, he came directly from the league, so he knows all the players. Let me just say this. If you're a quarterback, um, they look at the game differently. And they, they literally can look at one game tape and tell you what a team does. That's the advantage of having a quarterback. Now, did Tony Romo benefit from the cachet of being the signal caller for America's team, even though he wasn't a Troy Aikman or Roger Staubach in terms of winning Super Bowl championships? Of course. But he was still a high-profile figure, and he's got a great personality. I'll, look, when I hear him, I don't sense a loss of enthusiasm. I think he's happy to be there. He's obviously prepared. And when he calls a game, I learn something. And so I, I don't know. Dick Ebersole, would he, would he dare say that about one of his own announcers when he was running a network while they're currently on a deal? It's easy to say that about other people. Um, but I, I'm still firmly a fan of Tony Romo and what he brings to the table. Mm, a little surprised by that take. I thought you'd be a bit more critical. All right, last, last one. Last night's Thursday night football game was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Just as bad as that Broncos-Colts game, if not worse. Uh, is, is this a Thursday night football problem? Uh, you know, it, I don't, you know, for a long time, we used to complain about the matchups on Thursday night, that they were bad teams or whatever. But I think we're seeing bad product on Thursday night because the athletes, no, no different than Tony Romo, a lot of their passion for the game is being undercut by the amount of money they make. And they all feel sorry for themselves and we're taking it, man, we're playing 17 games and now we gotta play on Thursday night. Thursday night football is a bad product because the players aren't enthusiastic about it. And, and again, those were two bad teams last night. But when you yeah. go to the Broncos and the Colts, those are supposed to be playoff contending teams. Thursday night football is just bad, and I think the amount it's always going to remain bad because I think these overpaid athletes are just over it. 
and and feel like yeah. this Thursday night thing is a hassle that they shouldn't be doing? This is a situation where more is less. When I was growing up, you'd have the occasional Thursday night game when ABC had the Monday night package. You get, I think you'd get one at the beginning of the year and one at the end. But I remember growing up in the late 80s all the way up until about 10 years ago, Thursday nights used to be about a really good college football game. And it was like the unofficial kickoff to the start of the weekend. And ESPN specifically used to schedule some really big, high-profile games. I still remember way back when, when David Klingler and a high-flying Houston Cougars run and shoot played Miami at the Orange Bowl. And that remains one of the highest-rated games that ESPN has ever done in prime time. And it was like a big thing. It was their version, college football, of Monday Night Football. And last night, Jason, I don't know if anyone noticed, but Baylor and West Virginia put on a great show. It was 47-40, up and down. It was in a really lively atmosphere. And meanwhile, you're watching this other thing on Amazon. You know how I knew the game was bad? I didn't hear any complaints about how bad the stream was because I think people just didn't care. They just turned it off. Um... I think there's an issue with some of these games, a short practice time, even though Marcellus Wiley says from an individual standpoint, from a physical nature, maybe the fact that we don't practice is good for the body. And maybe he himself said, you know what? I like three, three days and then playing, but Jason, let's go all the way back. Nowadays in training camp, you're not even allowed to hit anymore that much. Guys don't put on pads. There are no two a days. All you're basically doing a lot is shells. You're not even going nine on sevens. You're barely thudding in practice. And then guys aren't really used to playing football. Their bodies are not toughened up. And you're right. I think there's a mindset of, ah, geez, four days we got to play a game. And I think that there is an issue. But this also brings up to a fact something that Coach Jason Brown brings up to you all the time. Quarterback play is at an all-time low, right? So you can't flex out these Thursday games like you can Sunday night. So now you're stuck with some bad product. Yesterday – the battle between Carson Wentz and uh, Field, that was like a kind of a has-been and a never was. That reminded me when I go to a club fight, and there's like a 5-17 and 17 guy against a 4-12 and 12 fighter in a six-rounder. And they throw punches, and they kind of slog through it. And, you know, nobody's getting hurt because they can't land on each other. That's what it felt like, a six-round club fight. And I'm kind of watching this thinking, wow, this is really, really bad. And I feel bad for Justin Fields because, number one, <laughs> they put him underneath center. I think he never did that at Ohio State. It's bad coaching with the kid that may not be suited to play quarterback anyway. It's very, very unwatchable. It's gotten to a point, Jason. You know, I'm a football fanatic. I don't even have Amazon Prime. I don't think I'm going to get it in the near future just for that. Honestly, I'll watch the games on NFL Network at night. I'll catch some of the highlights. But – I, I really do wonder if Amazon Prime thinks like, wow, we got ourselves a lemon because the games have been so bad. They've had one decent game, Jason. That was Kansas City against the Chargers. I believe that was week one or two. And since then, the product has devolved, right? I don't know of anyone actually saying, you know what? I need to go sign up for Amazon Prime after watching the last three, four weeks. I'm shocked when you talked about Thursday night and the tradition of Thursday night, how do you forget or how do you not reference at our age? And, you know, I'm a little bit older than you, but you're still part of my age. How do you not reference that Cheers and the Cosby Show used to be on Thursday nights? That was destination TV that, you know, now that 
the scripted shows on the network, they all have replaced it now with live sports, and that's where Thursday Night Football comes in. But when I think of th great Thursday Night TV, man, I, I think of the great comedy TV shows. Wasn't that must-see TV night for NBC? Now, here's a funny story now that you bring it up. Yeah about how television viewing has changed and it's a boxing relationship to this. You're right, back then, again, even in the, most of the uh, mid 80s. So Cosby Show came in in 1984. ESPN was not the force that you was at several years later. So 1984 was November, early November, Cosby Show debuted to huge numbers. On that particular night, Jason, the ABC ran a primetime boxing card from Madison Square Garden that had the pro debuts of Pernell Whitaker, Evander Holyfield, Meldrick Taylor, and Mark Breland. That was a big thing. And I remember watching some of it along with the Cosby Show. And this is how much the thing has changed. The Cosby Show, I think, was seen by tens of millions of people as a top five show right off the top. The boxing match on ABC, which ran it right around the same time, I think only had eight million people. If any boxing event got 8 million people today, there'd be a week-long celebration um, in the sport of boxing. That's how much it's changed. But, uh, Jason, I'm just telling you, I, I believe for the good of football, put up all the games on Sunday and Monday, have a Thursday night game to open the season, maybe one on Thanksgiving, because that's a tradition you cannot break. Okay, that's a part of Americana. Because, remember, they've actually added another Thanksgiving Day game. It was the Lions in the morning. Cowboys in the afternoon, and now you get the primetime NBC game. I get that. But I believe you're doing a disservice to college football, which is a free farm system for the National Football League for 75 years. Why not just give them that day to say, hey, guys, Friday's almost here. The week is over. Let's kick off and watch some football. Thank you, Steve. Have a great weekend. Hope your Miami Hurricanes actually show up this weekend and play a decent game. <laughs> All right, go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit notifications, hit subscribe. You can email me and us, fearlessblazeshow at gmail.com. Shamika Michelle, Shamoke Show. Thanks. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. All right, welcome back. I'm going to roll out to North Carolina, bring in Shamika Michelle, First Lady of the Fearless Army, uh, to help me make it make sense uh, of a couple of things. Uh, Shamika, welcome back to the show. The first one I want to start with is uh, Brittany Renner, America's favorite uh, Instagram harlot, uh, <laughs> has landed a semi-national or commercial with Crystals, uh, the burger chain, it's kind of like a, a different version of White Castles. I don't know if you've ever had Crystals, if they have those in North Carolina or not, but uh, 
Brittany Renner, uh, who's, got, who's a baby mama for an NBA player. She spoke uh, at Jackson State for Dion. See, everybody knows Brittany Renner. She's been an you know, Instagram harlot for five, six, maybe 10 years now. But she's getting national TV commercials. Let, let's, let's take a look here at Brittany Renner uh, endorsing Crystal's burger joint. The only side chicks I've seen that look better than me are these right here. Introducing three new, thicker, juicier side chicks. Mm. Attention, a 10 is speaking. These three new crystal side chicks are thicker, juicier, and crispier than ever. Mm. Keep your main thing if you want. We just want to be your side chick. Mmm, Crystals is now promoting side chicks, and so Brittany Renner's calling herself a side chick. Good thing, bad thing, or no thing? Well, what, make it make sense for me. So, Jason, I'm going to have a little fun with this foolishness because I am a commercial person. Like, growing up, I loved commercials. And the problem that I see here with this is I heard thicker, juicier, but I don't even know what's on this chicken sandwich. Like, they didn't even take the time to tell us. When I was little, I knew, I knew that McDonald's had a burger that had two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. I knew that Kentucky Fried Chicken was made with 11 herbs and spices. They actually promoted what they were selling. What are they selling here? I don't know. Okay, I guess it's chicken sandwiches, but all I see is this woman pushing immorality. And so when I think about commercials in the past, even if they had like some type of undertone or, or underlying message, it still sold the product. Case in point, I got caught in the love triangle up at Taco Bell. Ooh, when I tried that new steak taco with the soft tortilla, yeah. And then I took a bite of the new chicken taco and it stole my heart as well. And I was already in love with the 59 cent taco with the crunchy shell. Now I'm caught in the love triangle up at Taco Bell. I got caught, I better run for the border. We knew that Taco Bell was selling this 59 cent taco and they had introduced a chicken sauce and a steak sauce with a soft tortilla shell. Even though they talked like about a love triangle, they sold the product. Of course, Britney is a celebrity because of, you know, PJ Washington and the big child support payment that he has to make to her and her being an Instagram harlot. But even celebrities sold the product. I got another commercial, Jason. Hey, yo, I'm Young C with the story to tell. I just got a new cut from Taco Bell. And MTV makes the whole thing fun by a giant size Pepsi, and you'll get one. Four cups in all. So don't stand still. And if you have an empty cup, you get a free refill. Go to Taco Bell, and you see it's true. They got these four cups. They're just for you. Taco Bell only has them for a limited time. That's why I'm coming to you with the limited rhyme. To get these cups, you better place your order. So take my advice. You better run for the border. We loved Young MC, but he still sold the product. And so what I really, really love about this, Jason, is 2 chains said he chose Britney because she has a uh, pulse 
on the culture. This lets me know that the culture has changed. Exactly what we've been saying on this show for over a year now. We are in a decline. What they think about us is that we're just side chicks. We're sexual. We can't do think about anything else. They didn't even think to take the time to tell us about the product. So yes, this is the culture has changed and she has a post on it. So it's just confirming for us what we've been saying uh, for a long time. And um, when I was a little girl, this is my actual last one, Jason. There was a commercial that made me want to grow up and be a, a traditional woman. And that commercial was... Um, Mama washed with Tide when I was a kid. Now I'm an old-fashioned woman doing what my mama did. I keep my family looking good. I've got old-fashioned pride. Can't stand these spots and stains. That's why I wash with Tide. I'm an old-fashioned woman. You know what I mean? I'm going to keep on using Tide because there's nothing old-fashioned about clean. I knew I wanted to grow up, wash laundry for my family, keep them looking good, and there was nothing wrong with being a traditional woman. Now what are we pushing to our kids? Side chicks. The culture has changed. Uh, you know, we need some sound effects. We're going to add sound effects next week for this show because we need a whole studio audience applaud. That was amazing. I had no idea you were gonna, I got nothing to add to that other than just hat tip, <laughs> awesome job. Uh, I got one more for, now, I don't, I, I, I don't wanna dirty up what you just did, but the whole time the, the Brittany Renner deal made me think of the Carl's Jr. girls in bikinis. That's mm. where it seemed like fast food went into, hey, we're just selling sex. Anything to get right. your attention and that's what they're doing here with Brittany Renner. And you're right. Again, the product has nothing to do with this. It's, it's almost, they might as well uh, sell condoms and uh, STD tests along with the chicken sandwiches because that's all what they're selling is, hey, you can get you a side chick like Brittany Renner and we got a condom here for you and an STD test if you, do, if you don't want to use a condom. Anyway. Good exactly. stuff. I've been dirtied it up. Let me move. Let me move to the next one. Uh, I think this is out in California. Uh, there's someone confronting school officials and the school board about uh, their their child seeing someone masturbate at school, and the school board has a very interesting reaction. I want you to make it make sense. Let's watch the video. On May 17th, my seventh grade daughter, along with every other classmate, watched a boy in her class masturbate. I only saw it, I only know this because my daughter told me in the car when I picked her up, saying her friends said they were disturbed, traumatized, and scared. The principal reported the incident to the district office. I've heard not from any one of them. It does not take an expert to figure out what happens to a 13-year-old boy when he's staring at mostly naked girls wearing underwear to school and being exposed to concepts like oral and anal sex in seventh grade. They let children write the dress code. The Teen Talk Comprehensive Sex Ed is not age appropriate and neither are supported by parents and teachers have spoken out adamantly against this. Despite all of this, they approved them both 
five to zero. Just like everything else, they slipped in while we weren't, weren't watching. My daughter and that boy are victims of this board's approved content and curriculum, and I hold them each personally responsible for the social and emotional damage to these children. And again, part of what we try to do is, is um, protect the confidentiality of our students, who can't go into a lot of details about this. But there was outrage on uh, the subject of the boy who was masturbating in one of his classes. And I just want to ask, did the teacher and the board allow that, or is this something that might have just happened? Um, when we talk about um, masturbation, it uh, could be rubbing of their jeans with their hand outside of their pants. doesn't necessarily need to be inside. As someone who's been an elementary and middle school principal, um, I would say that at least once a year, this comes up from both males and females um, within a school setting. And so I don't think that this is anything outside the norm um, oh that would take place. So that is not right. mm, make it make sense. So first of all, I want to just give a shout out to the parents that are attending these school board meetings, even in the light or the wake of them being called domestic terrorists. I appreciate the parents that are still going and are still fighting on their children's behalf, because I honestly think, Jason, it is an orchestrated effort to separate parents and children or to break the bond between parents and children and to make uh, parents look like the enemy. Here in Charlotte, North Carolina, we have a, we had a parent who had to address the school board because there was reading uh, material that was assigned to the classroom that was talking about how to have masturbation and it's okay to be gay and to have gay sex. And it's like, what is this foolishness that's being pushed on our children? There's an all-out attack on our kids. I believe that that's why they're pushing so much sexual uh, immorality in the schools. I think that's why they have parents step out when it comes to a doctor's appointment so they can talk to the child about some things that they don't want the parents to know. We have going on in Virginia right now. They've just introduced some type of legislation so the parent can be penalized if they don't affirm the child's gender identity. This is what's happening. I've even heard moms coming out of the hospital with newborn babies saying, I don't have, you know, adequate milk supply, according to the doctor. And the doctor is saying, you know, you need to, to uh, implement formula. Sometimes this is true, but tell me why we are pushing so much that what God has created our breasts for don't work. No other mammal will tell, oh, well, you know, cows can't feed their babies. They need formula. It's just us. So I really believe there's an orchestrated effort to just separate kids from parents. And so I applaud the parents that are not standing for it. You know, I loved Wonder Woman. My mother never said to me, okay, Shamika, you can be Wonder Woman. Although I grew up to have a pretty good spin. Now, that being said, Jason, we cannot let these children just tell us who they are and what they're going to do because they don't know. That's why they have parents. That's why we're supposed to train the child up in the way that they should go. They're trying to really take our rights as parents. And when you listen to this man with this little squeaky sounding voice saying that's normal, I went K through 12th grade never saw 
a, a boy masturbate in class. Like it wasn't normal then. So something has changed and it's not right that our adults are pushing this foolishness on our kids. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I was reading yesterday or the day before about the feminist game plan that was hatched in the 50s and 60s and how they were going to tear down the family and it was all based off of promoting promiscuity and pr pr and if we promote promiscuity uh, we're going to destroy monogamy and we're going to destroy the family and we're going to sexualize everybody and we're going to promote gay sex and all that and it's it's the plan, this is their plan to tear down the patriarchy, and it is working. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, kids have been, again, kids are gonna do enough sexual harm and mischief without teachers and school systems saying, yeah, go for it, go for it. Right. You know, where adults need to be like, hey, no, 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 pull this back, this isn't proper, blah, 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 you, you need to be, but, it's it's an attack on the family, and I'm glad to see parents waking up. I'm so thankful for libs of TikTok and all the other platforms that are exposing this and putting it in our face so we can come up out of the denial that this isn't happening. Uh, awesome job today, Shamika. Thank you so much. Thank Have an you. an awesome weekend. Uh, we'll see you next week. All right, you can get your Fearless Army swag at shopblazemedia.com slash fearless. You can email me and us at fearlessblazeshow at uh, gmail.com, fearlessblazeshow at gmail.com. Love getting your emails and feedback. Uh, please keep that rolling in. Love to hear from you. All right, Delano Squires. All right, welcome back. Time to get a little smarter and roll out to Washington, D.C. and bring in the main man to our show, Delano Squires. Uh, Delano, uh, welcome back. You've written a terrific column uh, about an issue that I am really, really passionate about. And, and so I want you to unpack initially what you wrote about black Christians and being at a crossroads where we need to choose which identity are we going to embrace, our skin color or our Christianity. The two can't coexist. Please elaborate. Sure, Jason. I mean, you, you hit the central argument right on this head. Um, I, the question I pose to black believers is, you can have your Bible or your black card, but you can't have both. And and when I say the black card, I'm, I mean specifically the way blackness has been turned into a political identity. I'm not saying that a, a melanated Christian cannot exist because I, I go and I, and I took time in the article to talk about, you know, how, how the, the Bible says, you know, we're, we're all descended, descended from the same um, person from Adam, all wrecked with sin, all in need of a savior. And that the scriptures themselves say that the people of God are redrawn from every tribe and tongue and nation. So this is not, I'm not making the argument that certain ethnicities cannot be Christian. I'm making the argument 
that given the way blackness is defined today, which is almost synonymous with the left, that you can't claim to believe your Bible and, and hold that it's true and authoritative in your life and also promote all of the things that the left promotes. And, and I go through some of those things. And, and first and foremost among them is abortion. Um, I mean, the left is completely sold out to the abortion lobby. In the article, I, I included um, a link to a letter that the National Urban League wrote in collaboration with the NAACP, the National Action Network. They call it 18 civil rights organizations uh, petitioning the president for a meeting on how to expand abortion access and voting rights, which they you know, connected to all other you know, democratic policy priorities. So, so we're at the point, Jason, where to be, again, in good standing in the black community, <coughs> to keep your black card, you have to promote the wholesale slaughter of black children in the womb. Um, and this is what's deemed as being authentically black. And that was, if there was one takeaway from that Kanye interview last week that was crystal clear, is that any black celebrity that goes against the abortion lobby is going to get their black car pulled. You came up, I think this is new, it's the first time I've seen it, maybe you've mentioned it before, but you came up with a new name for the NAACP uh, that I love. Please unpack that. So I called them the National Association for the Abortion of Colored People. And um, I actually got that uh, from a guy, and I, I mentioned it one other time on the show before. His name is Ryan Baumgartner, I believe. Um, who's you know big on the pro-life side, and I mean I think it's a fitting name and a, and, a, and a fitting acronym because at this point, the NAACP, as I said, the Urban League, all of these organizations promote abortion with much more passion and vigor than they do marriage and the nuclear family. And this morning I actually tweeted after I tweeted out my article. I tweeted to uh, Derek Johnson, the head of the NAACP, Mark Morial, uh, head of Urban League, and the Reverend Al Sharpton, who you know created National Action Network, and and asked why their organizations are so hell bent on reducing the black population. And I said, if you're so concerned with black children and black women, then you should. How about promoting a campaign um, that you know promotes marriage and the nuclear family? So hopefully I'll, I'll hear back from them. But as, as of this point, it, it, the, the rule of thumb is basically just to think of it this way. Any quote unquote mainstream black organization is going to be rabidly pro-abortion, wholeheartedly LGBT, um, only talk about white supremacy when it comes to, you know, the things that are holding black people back. Um, pro-BLM, Black Lives Matter, but only when that relates to issues involving the police or white vigilantes. And they will be completely silent on, on street crime, marriage in the nuclear family, um, abortion, or and it's the disproportionate impact it has on the black community, and any other issue in which the primary people responsible for resolving that issue are black folk and not white people. Delano, these organizations, the Urban League in particular, I, I know the history of the NAACP better than the Urban League. These organizations 
are not financed by us. So they're really not, and as it relates to the NAACP, they weren't even uh, founded by us. W.E.B. Du Bois was installed as a figurehead, but, and you know, I know I'm gonna upset people, but these are just facts. This is what Kanye was getting at. If you go look at the uh, white, secular, Jewish people who actually founded the NAACP and finance much of it that, uh, you know, and, and we have such an allegiance to the NAACP, I'm just wondering if, if we can ever get beyond that history and allegiance to see that these organizations actually aren't working on our behalf and perhaps never were. I, I think that's a uh, completely um, legitimate question, Jason. I will say this, um, many black people, I'd say the vast majority of black folks in this country uh, hold up or have held up the NAACP in a place of reverence because they, they did fight for equal rights and equal citizenship for, for black citizens, right? Um, regardless of how, how they got started, because in the same way, you know, freed slaves didn't build HBCUs per se, right? So even Howard is not named after uh, an ex-slave, it's named after, um, I believe, a union general. So it's not to say that just because an organization was not started by a particular group of people that it can't work for the benefit of a particular group of people. But I will say this, we reached an inflection point, and I, I would put that right at the time, the mid-60s when the Civil Rights Act, you know, was passed, where we had to decide what is it that would determine our future. And I think 60 years have shown that the black leadership class said political representation. We, we won this, this legislative victory and we're gonna put all of our chips into politics um, because if we get more people representing us, then it'll improve the social and economic condition of black communities. And I think, I think that bet has been uh, proven to be a failure. And, and one of the things that I would argue, and I'm actually thinking about writing about this next week, um, or one of the questions I would raise is whether the black community would be in a better position socially and culturally, not religiously, socially and culturally, if the, the 60s, this, the, the, the sort of the ethos of the 60s was dominated by Malcolm instead of Martin. And if the descendants, the sort of the, the political or, or cultural descendants of Malcolm X had more sway over our culture than those of Martin Luther King. Um, and, I, and, I know, and, and I'll get into Farrakhan and I, I would put him up against Raphael Warnock and I would make the argument or raise the question whether the black preachers of the, of the Warnock lineage, the, coming right down through King, have, have done more to harm the community than, than someone, you know, coming, again, out of Malcolm's lineage. Because Jason, at the end of the day, both of them hate Whitey, so that part is a wash. But what you get on, from the, the Nation of Islam, even though, and I, I think this goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, I completely disagree with their theology, right? But the, the, the black Christian ministers I'm talking about have no more reverence for Jesus than, than, than Farrakhan does. 
They may use his name more often, but they blaspheme him every time they put their pen to paper, either in their statements or their policies. But what you get from the nation is ordered creation, male leadership, order in neighborhoods. As someone who's worked in, in cities and lived in different cities, you hear people say, man, when the nation came through here, they cleaned up some of these issues in our community. Because when you get past some of the rhetoric, Farrakhan believes in, in black folk, our ability to hold one another accountable and do for ourselves. And the only thing that the NAACP, and again, the Raphael Warnocks, the, the Urban League, the entire black leadership class, including those self-professed Christians, the only thing that they believe is that white people have to fix all of our problems for us. So I think the NAACP's history is what it is, but it has morphed into an organization that I would argue is completely antithetical to the interests of black folk. It's, it's funny you went down that NOI path and, and it, it does tie in. I, I, I'm not gonna, I gotta be careful here. I'm not gonna name a relative very close to uh, who was involved in all sorts of debauchery. If it was debaucherous, they were involved in it. If it involved drug dealing, they were involved in it. If it involved illicit sex, they were involved in it. The only thing that straightened this relative up was the Nation of Islam. And I watched, and I've got to be careful here, but I watched members of my family uh, turn on this person because in, in, while in the nation of Islam, they cleaned up their behavior, but members of my family were so upset because they walked away from the Christian church mm. and th they were you know, devastated. A and I get why, I'm a Christian, I, I get it, her salvation, the person's salvation uh, was at stake. Mm -hmm. uh, I get it, but I, all I was looking at was like, whoa, the drugs are gone, the drug dealing's mm -hmm. gone, uh, the immoral sex is gone. This is a much better person. And, <laughs> and so I, I, I just wanted to deal with that. And, and so I, I've never, and I know I, I, I'm like you, don't believe in the theology, but I'm not gonna sit around and argue with their ability to clean up the behavior and clean up people that, uh, that I see other groups struggling to clean up. And, and I, I'm sorry, it's hard for me to knock them. And I know people get upset with me and, and think it's a contradiction or whatever, but people have a journey. And, and you know, we gotta let people go on that journey. I'm, I'm, now you got me thinking about my family and other things. I want to I want to switch back to to your conversation as it relates to the Christian Church mm -hmm. allowing blackness to become our identity rather than mm -hmm. Christianity. You, where does that stem from? How do we inspire the Christian Church, particularly the Black Church? from addressing these issues because what you write about in this column, every minister should be dealing with in his congregation and it sounds like, hey man, 
God does not call us to be black. He, he calls us to be Christians. I don't even understand how this isn't up for debate and how people can't recognize that it's a real problem. I mean, I, I think part of it is because for, for many of us, our most enduring identity is tied to our skin color. So even after we, we say, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian now, right? And when, when the Bible says well, there's no longer Jew, nor Gentile, nor, nor free, nor slave, nor male or woman, but all are one in Christ, we say, yeah, I believe that, but I'm still black first. And if I have to choose between the atheist BLM rally and the pro-life march with a bunch of uh, Trump voters, I'm going to go with the atheists because they look like me and that's, that's who I identify with primarily. Um, I think the age of Trump has definitely uh, thrown gasoline on that fire that was always smoldering. Because since I think 2016, you, you start to see, and I mentioned this in, 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 the, in the column, when, when the National Museum for African American History and Culture came out with this thing about white culture and whiteness, and you had things like the nuclear family, objectivity, um, you know, timeliness, so on and so forth. When they say that those things are white, the default um, for a lot of people is to say, well, anything that's opposite of white is black. And that's why I say you get, now you have, you know, body positivity, you have LGBT, you have all these other things that are, that are sort of coded with uh, blackness because in the mainstream culture, it's whatever is white and normative has to be countered by what's black and subversive. Um, and I think even many Christians, self-professed Christians, have taken on that mentality. And that's why, as I say, and Jason, you know what really got me thinking to write this? Last week, I was I was walking to a birthday party, you know, um, with some kids that are in my, my kids' homeschool co-op, and I saw an article from BET pop up. And it had, it was about Zaya Wade, right? Dwayne Wade's son, who thinks he's a girl. And BET is saying, oh, it was one of these yes, slay queen type articles, all of his looks and all this, and they got the hair and all. And I'm saying to myself, this is BET, right? The day before I saw where Planned Parenthood, who had posted something about, you know, Black Lives Matter, and we need to hold all the people who brutalize Black Lives accountable. And I said, these people have no self-awareness. And then I did my research and I said, the Congressional Black Caucus um, supports Black um, supports Planned Parenthood. BET supports Planned Parenthood. The NAACP supports Planned Parenthood. And it became clear to me that if you want to be in good standing, you have to get behind these things. And that's why you see so many athletes, even ones who profess to be Christians, bend the knee when it comes time for choosing, or they'll, they'll stay silent. Um, there are very few Jonathan Isaacs out there who are willing to stand when everybody else is kneeling and kissing the ring of, of the abortion lobby and the LGBT uh, mafia. You said the age of Trump, I think the age of Obama has done more mm. to make black people see their identity as black, has made black Christians see their identity as black more than Christ followers. I think it's the age of Obama. I, I first, I, I saw people struggle with the same-sex marriage issue 
mm. uh, with as it related to Obama, and 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 then I saw people fall in love with the political power and the. Uh, oh, I got trips to the White House, and and we're in the White House, and if we can't, it's like the Obamas are royalty, and everybody aspires to that, and that's, I want to be a part of that rather than be a part of God's kingdom or kingdom mm. building here on on Earth. I I, I think the age of Obama has changed, has done more to hammer home that our identity is political more than it is spiritual. And you mm -hmm. mentioned Hannah, Hannah Nicole Jones or Hannah Jones Nicole or whatever her name is and how she said, you know, blackness is a political identity. Mm -hmm. I think the old age of Obama did that. I, I would agree with you that it, it certainly started it. The, the, the distinction that I would make is that the age of Obama um, brought about the conception of blackness that was um, I think I, I would characterize it as more optimistic. It was pro certain things, right? So, uh, you know, when, when, when I was in Nashville the other day, I was talking about, I remember the day before he won the nomination and getting on the train and seeing people, and you gave the head nod and everybody was happy. So that, that was a, a more affirmative black identity. So I do agree because I think what happened is when, as Obama moved on certain things, particularly on same-sex marriage, you saw a lot of the black churches started to move. They started to move, right? I think what Trump did, it unleashed the, a conception of blackness that was more anti-something. And that anti-something was whiteness. Because I remember Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote a column for, or an essay for The Atlantic and said, Trump was our first white president. And he basically said, he was basically trying to say the first like openly white supremacist president. And I think that that created a reaction that said, well, to be black is to be against everything that he's for. So if he's uh, pro-life, then to be black is to be hardcore pro-abortion. Um, and I think it made it even harder for people who might've wanted to say, well, I, I, I'm not really for those things. I think it made it harder for them to do that in the age of Trump because somebody would say, well, look at you. You're in the same camp with all those Trump people. And I think the, the, the movement away from things that I would define as biblical that conservatives believe was a lot quicker. I think the, the movement away from it was quicker under Trump than the movement towards certain things was um, under Obama, if that makes sense. It does, you, you, and you're okay. making me think, I'm gonna crack a joke here, just I'm gonna telegraph, I'm joking here, but. Uh, the the greatest thing that could save black people would be if President Trump came out and said Popeye's chicken is his favorite place to eat, Hennessy mm -hmm. is his favorite drink, and weed is his favorite thing to his smoke on weekends. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and we, Jason, we be, and that yeah. he was hardcore pro-abortion. I've argued before the one thing that would make black folk jump off abortion is if conservative Republicans start to support it. Then they would say, look, they, they trying to kill our babies. Th that would be the one thing that would make them jump off. <laughs> Delano, uh, thank you so much. Have a great you, weekend. Jason. Appreciate you. All right, uh, we can get our weekend started by listening to some Tamara as she sings Freedom. That means we'll see you next week. We obviously 
Giving all the seeds when we all wanna be free We want freedom I just want, I wanna be I just want, I wanna be I just want, I wanna be I just want 